Do you ever ask yourself this question? Why do I watch the news anymore? TV, print media, and social media especially make it seem like violent crime is happening all around us all the time. What irks me is that once the shock factor is over, there are so few voices giving us information about how to respond when tragedy does land at our doorstep. But today's guest is going to do just that. I'm so glad that you've joined me for this episode of The Unlovely Truth. I'm your host, private investigator Lori Morrison. Let's tackle another story from the world of true crime, and then we'll see what spiritual and safety takeaways we can find there. I think it's every Christian's calling to be a PI, not a private investigator, but a different kind of PI, a person of impact. Stick around because we're going to talk about an easy way to do that in your own community. This is Season 4, Episode 16. Our book this week is The Decision to Kill, a true crime story of a teenage killer and the mother who loved him. Let's step back in time for just a moment. It's October 17, 1986, and 16-year-old Dwayne Weir begins his day by taking the Valium a friend from school traded him for some weed. But the Valium isn't enough, and he smokes some of the weed that he has left, too. He's already been to rehab, and doctors suspected that he was addicted to amphetamines as well. His parents have caught him trying other drugs, and they're at their wits' end. School's letting out early this day. Dwayne's parents make him go to work with his dad rather than be alone because who knows what kind of trouble he'll get into if he's by himself. His dad fixes logging trucks, and there's plenty that need help where they live in the Oregon forest. Dwayne would rather be at home practicing his music the music that he's sure is going to be his ticket out of his boring existence. This truck fix takes hours, and by the time they're home, it's already dark. Dwayne's mom, Cherie, is away at a high school reunion, so he decides that this is the best time possible to do what he's been planning for some time. He uses one of his dad's hunting rifles to kill the man who had adopted him. Dwayne did show a few warning signs early on. Don and Cherie were shocked to wake up one morning to find four-year-old Dwayne outside, soaked to the skin and covered in scratches. Their cat had recently had kittens, and the mama had taken her babies to a nearby creek. Don found them there, all soaking wet too, but he couldn't get a coherent story from Dwayne about what had happened. Later that year, Dwayne managed to turn on the stove and set some papers on fire. When Don and Cherie had a daughter, Dwayne's little sister, he seemed to adjust well to being a big brother. He just didn't seem to do quite as well with kids his own age. He was a loner, so Cherie really encouraged him when he showed an interest in music. She was not encouraged by his other hobby, petty theft. As he got older, Dwayne's grades started slipping, so Cherie and Don tried to get him counseling. Once they discovered that he was stealing money from his sister and school authorities caught him selling drugs to a fellow student, things really went south. Dwayne got suspended from school for three days, and his parents sent him to a drug counseling program. I don't know if you've ever been there, but I can only imagine what a difficult, difficult time this must have been for them, and they really leaned on their church for support. They were getting ready to need a lot more support than they ever imagined. Dwayne had joined a band with some other teens, and the parents who owned the house where the kids all practiced actually provided the kids with their homegrown pot. When Don and Cherie found out, they made him quit the band, 
but Dwayne was already loving the way being high made him feel. And he still loves stealing, too. He even took his mom's car when he was just 14 years old. Dwayne went on a shoplifting spree that ended up with charges being pressed against him. His parents tried to get him counseling again. One professional suggested that Dwayne had a personality disorder, but somehow this insight led nowhere. His drug use got worse, and Don and Cherie's attempts to help him or discipline him just didn't do any good. He went again to a drug detox program, but he left before his treatment was finished. The Weirs put him in a Christian school, but there were drug users there too. I hate to burst your bubble, but there are in every Christian school. Dwayne quickly found them and made friends with them. His increasing defiance led to more and more restrictions on his activities. That's why Sherry was so excited to go to this reunion. It was an opportunity to get away from all of the tension at home. Don wanted her to take some extra cash with her in case she would need it. Once Dwayne found out his mom had this cash in her wallet, he helped himself to it. Don was livid and he locked up all of Dwayne's musical instruments and gear in a trailer. Dwayne was told that he would not get them back for at least a week. There were a couple other, more minor arguments between Don and Dwayne after Cherie left on her trip. Don was on the phone with her, and they were trying to decide how they could help their son. In the meantime, Dwayne was retrieving weapons from his father's closet so that he could put an end to his problems with Don once and for all. After Dwayne shot his father, he took off and joined with some of the friends that his parents had tried so hard to keep him away from. He actually told them that he had killed his dad, but they didn't believe him. Dwayne's sister had been at a friend's house overnight, and when they dropped her off at her home, she was the one to find Don's body. Cherie rushed home once she got the terrible news, and it wasn't long before Dwayne was arrested at his friend's trailer. It was the end of one nightmare and the beginning of another for Cherie. She went to visit Dwayne so she could ask him what everyone else was wondering. Why in the world did he do this? He blamed it on the drugs, but she could tell that he didn't have any remorse at all. Cherie went home to pick out the clothes that her beloved Don would be buried in. In the meantime, Dwayne wrote his mother a letter saying that he wanted to be released on house arrest and return to live with her. Can you imagine what it had to be like to get that letter? He continued to bombard her with more and more letters that, in my opinion, were designed just to trigger guilt so he could have what he wanted. People who had been there for Cherie before now started to pull away. As believers, times like this are when we need to lean in, not back away. Authorities decided that Dwayne would be tried as an adult. He kept writing letters to his mother, bitterly complaining about how hard all this was on him. He didn't seem to care one bit about the heartache that he'd caused her and his sister. Eventually, Dwayne pled guilty to killing his father, mostly because he believed that entering a guilty plea instead of going to trial would get him a lighter sentence. Instead, he got life in prison. Cherie visited her son at first, but his continued insistence that everything he did was someone else's fault, understandably, took quite a toll on her. At one point, she went for 12 years without visiting, while he continued to write to her. He went back and forth between trying to manipulate her to venting his rage at her. She continued to try to be as positive as she could be, and she shared scripture with him. After years of incarceration, Dwayne developed severe chronic kidney disease due to a genetic condition. And it seemed that that allowed him to finally get a little more insight into his own motivations. He began to read his Bible again, and he said that now he'd found a genuine faith. 
I want you to be sure to get a copy of The Decision to Kill, a true crime story of a teenage killer and the mother who loved him, to get the full story. Each of us who is a parent knows what it's like to be in a tough season with our kids. We really need the support of others who have been there and survived. For all of us who are seasoned parents, I want to challenge us to find a parent who's in a tough season right now and see if they'd be open to letting you help them. Whether it's just being someone they can talk to or being more involved, the important thing is that we all have to work together. That's how we make our families, our loved ones, and our communities just a little bit safer. I'm excited that we get to talk to the author of the book, Leslie Giglieri, today. Leslie has a degree in political science, and she's worked on numerous political campaigns. But her interest in the criminal justice field led her to work as a 911 dispatcher in California. Then after moving to Oregon, she joined the Josephine County Sheriff's Department, working in the Dispatch and Warrants Division for three years. Then she accepted a position as a field representative for a criminal justice computer system, where she oversaw the needs of 17 different agencies. Now that she's retired, she was able to fulfill the wish of a friend to document this story. And by doing so, she also shared a surprising message of hope. Let's check in with Leslie right now. Leslie, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for inviting me. Well, I'm, I'm really excited to talk with you. This was a very moving story, and I think made even more so because you were friends with Sheree. I, I can't even imagine how hard it also had to have been on you to go through all this material and dig into some really dark stuff. Why did you do it? I did it because it was so important to her, and I love Sheree. She was an extraordinary person, had so many friends, always made people feel like they were the most important person to her at that moment when she was talking to them. Over the years, she allowed people to stay in her house that needed a place to stay for periods of time. She's just very generous. So this was something she had expressed to me. She had lived the life that she had lived and wanted to share all that she had learned through that time period with other people to bring them hope in similar situations. So I took it on because it was important to her. And I do like to write. I had written quite a bit in my work career. And so I felt like I was the one to do it. I'm glad you brought up that Cherie really wanted to share that there was also hope in her story. Because it seemed at times a little bit hopeless when she and Don were just doing everything it seemed like they could to help Dwayne with some of these troubling behaviors he was exhibiting. With the benefit of hindsight, when she was talking to you about any of this, did she mention anything that, that maybe she would do differently or red flags that she now could notice but didn't, you know, in the moment? I think... Only in that looking back, she saw how one thing built on another over the years, that the behaviors that she saw and thought were not appropriate or just not quite right, but she couldn't put her finger on it as to why. There was a reason she felt those feelings at the time. 
of course, she had no way to look into the future to see how it was going to manifest itself years down the road. So I don't know that she really second-guessed herself so much. I think she felt when she recognized there were problems, she tried to get help for those problems because she knew they were beyond her ability to know what to do. Like you said, they had pretty much worn out their ability to know what to do when Dwayne would behave a certain way. And they had read books, they had read Dobson books and secular books and gone to the county health department, talked to the pediatrician and exhausted all of those efforts. So maybe she wasn't the perfect parent. Maybe she should have been more patient. Maybe they should have been stricter. You know, you look back and you question those things. And later on in the book, as the son was kind of attacking her about her parenting styles, hers and her husband's, it probably made her question because as parents, we can look back and recognize maybe I should have been different in this situation. But I think generally, she didn't feel like she took blame on herself for having not done anything major. They loved him. They never didn't love him. They welcomed him into their home. They were so excited to have a baby. So in all the important areas, she supported him in Cub Scouts and just all of those things they tried to do as a supportive family. So I don't, I don't think looking back that she pinpointed certain areas where they were deficient. I think all of us as parents, though, would naturally have certain things where, oh, I could have handled that differently. But you bring up, a really good point about not looking at behaviors and attitudes and acting out situations in isolation. You really do have to look at the totality of everything. And that's hard to do when you're in the moment. Sure. As parents, of course, because that's where we're parenting, <laughs> you know, we're parenting in the moment. And as they get older and things get more serious, it does take a, a different turn. And in their case, of course, it took a, a very bad turn. What you shared in the book that caught my attention the most was how people who had been there for Cherie in her life before, you know, the, the friends, the acquaintances that rally around you when you need some help with something, those people that had been there before Don's murder, a lot of them now pulled away, worried, it seemed, more about the effect of this tragedy on their lives than on hers. And I'm always trying to have takeaways for listeners. So tell us about anything Cherie might have shared with you that people could have done that would have meant a lot to her. Oh, that was still very raw. You figured that this happened in 1986. And when we were talking about the book and putting the information together, it was from 2016 on. But that particular subject you're talking about, I could tell it still hurt her because there were several people that were very close that she and Don socialized with and would play cards at their house and go over for barbecues, very close friends that suddenly just disappeared. And at first, she kind of made up excuses for them, but mostly she was terribly hurt. 
she tried to understand why they would respond like they did. And there's some thoughts from her in the book about that. But really, I don't know if it was the fact that her husband died or the fact that he died at the hand of their son that kept people away. She did wonder if sometimes people don't know what to say, so they just avoid a situation. And that's the time when our friends really need us the most. And Fortunately, now I think there's a lot more attention to teaching people how to deal with grief, not only their own grief, but when they see friends and family members going through grief, we learn more how to reach out to somebody and give them support instead of just staying away because we feel awkward or we don't know what the right words are and we don't want to say the wrong thing. And maybe we learn that we are there and we hug them and we just let them know we're there. I'm not a grief counselor. I don't know, but I just think that there's a lot more awareness now about wanting to be there. But those people never reestablished contact with her probably after time went by, then they were embarrassed and maybe even ashamed for having left her. But it was very sad. She didn't, that was the last thing she needed on top of everything else she was dealing with. There's a lot of great books out there about how to deal with your own grief. I think there's probably a lot fewer about how to support somebody else as they deal with grief. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I know when my parents passed away over a period of years of each other, I got pretty sensitive to what things people would say to me that made me feel better and what things had the opposite effect, you know. And I've seen sheets that are only maybe 10 points long of these are the things to think about when you talk to someone who has had a loved one pass away. Yeah, it it was a really hard time for her losing her husband and then losing her son at the same time when he was in prison was very hard. So I I think we would all do well to search out resources that would prepare us because you never know when someone needs that kind of support, even from the loss of a pet. I love my pets. And just just the sadness that comes over us when we experience loss and to be the kind of support that helps someone. And she had another child to keep raising. She wasn't able to just completely lose herself in her grief. She had to to keep going on for her daughter. In the book, you describe how mother and daughter didn't necessarily choose the same path of moving forward. The daughter really didn't want anything to do with her brother anymore. But Cherie continued to visit him. She wrote letters to him. And I think maybe that might be shocking to some people. You know, it was a little jarring for me at first when I read that. What was her motivation for keeping in contact with him? Well, when they adopted Dwayne, I don't know that they do this anymore in ceremonies when there's an adoption that takes place. But this happened in Los Angeles in 1970. And there was part of the actual ceremony in the courtroom where the parents put their hands on the Bible and swore that they would care for this child to the best of their ability until the child turned 18. So there was a religious component to it. They took that very seriously. 
because Dwayne had health issues early on. And there were things that tested them as far as parenting just in general, but they were sold out. This is the boy that God had given them and they loved and they were sold out. So her initial feeling, he was 16 at the time he murdered his dad. He was not 18. She had promised he would be there till he turned 18. And I think in her mind's eye that she thought she might reevaluate that when he turned 18. But until he turned 18, that was part of the commitment she had made, no matter what. And so I think that was part of her motivation was to be true to that commitment. Then as she adjusted to what all that meant and how she felt about her son, he was still her son, whether he was 18 or 17. And her love for him was the same. I'm not saying she didn't, she never used to me the words hate, but she felt like she didn't know him, that the teenager that had shot and killed her husband was not the boy that she raised. She just had a really hard time making that step from what he had been to what he had done. That was very hard for her, but she just felt as she was grappling with all of those issues, I think she she just made a decision that I love him. She wasn't sure what love looked like, but she was going to stay connected with him. She had never before been afraid of him. That's a question I've been asked about his behavior. Did they think it was the son when they found Don murdered? And nobody even considered it was the son, at least not the daughter or Cherie. Even though they'd had trouble with Dwayne, they weren't ever afraid of him. She was mad at him for things that he had done, but they never were fearful. And after that, she was afraid of him. I think that was really hard for her, that feeling. But as far as staying connected, that was important to her. I've always said that we want God's grace and forgiveness for ourselves, but we're not always so quick to extend it to other people. God loves everybody as his child. And we don't like to think about how someone that's done something like Dwayne did as God loving them as much as he loves us. That's just something tough to process. It doesn't seem fair. So I was just so amazed that she was able to really, in the midst of her grief, just hone in on that and understand it and really, really show people what unconditional love looks like. And I think with Cherie that the forgiveness in terms of what he had done and her being able to forgive him didn't come for years. She indicated that she had earlier on than I think she really had because of just conversations that we had. So even though she didn't forgive him, she still felt like it was important for her to because her uh, spiritual life was so important and her concern for him in terms of his spiritual well-being, she felt that she couldn't abandon him in that way to prison life without keeping that connection. She would write scripture to him. She would pray for him, no matter how she felt about him. 
I don't know if that makes sense. She loved him in that way that comes from a commitment more than a feeling, I guess. Oh, that's well said. That's a great way to look at it because we're talking about some really, really deep stuff emotionally here that a lot of us will never have to go through, but maybe someone in our circle will. So I think understanding that and and knowing how to approach it is really important. I'm sure that as you went through all this, you know, it wasn't your trauma, but it certainly affected you. Once the project was done, could you really see that it had kind of changed the way you looked at your faith in it all? Gosh, that's an interesting question. Through the telling of the story, it it made me think about forgiveness and what does that look like? What does love look like? It definitely made me think about those deeper questions that when you sit in a church and talk about the scriptures, they seem really straightforward. But when you're in the middle of a life situation, just applying what you know to your circumstances is tough. I think what I did in the book And what the readers will find out if they get the book is I tried to tell the story as accurately as I could without any sort of editorializing about who was doing what or Dwayne and his behavior and whether he was sincere or not, since he was diagnosed as being a sociopath and not making any determination or excuse for what he did based on that mental disorder, but it it does give you reason to think with the forgiveness, how she approached that. And it, it just made me think. It's just hard to verbalize. Knowing the scripture and applying it to actual life circumstances are two different things for sure. Yes. And it takes time, I believe, with Cherie, she loved him. That didn't waver. She had been manipulated by him, but she was on alert about that. She wanted to show him love without being manipulated by him. And he was so awful to her in the early years of his imprisonment that she had no desire to communicate with him, though she did in a very restricted manner. She wasn't all gushy, lovey with him. It was pretty raw with her, and her showing that she cared about him meant, I'll write scripture to you, I'll let you know I'm praying for you, but I'm not going to feed into your manipulation. And If readers read those letters, they will see what she had to deal with. I don't think that she was able to even begin to forgive him, even though she loved him, until he started to show what she saw was genuine remorse and genuine accountability. And he began to really seriously search for faith. Until then, They weren't on the same level as to how they looked at life. And so she was there for him, but 
it wasn't until there was true change with him that there was forgiveness for her and for him. Well, the book is a fascinating read, I have to tell you. And there's lots of great takeaways. I hope we've given everybody listening some some good takeaways today here too. If someone wants to connect with you, wants to get the book or any other thing that you've been working on, how do they do that? How do we connect with you? Well, I do have an author Facebook page. That's a good way. Just follow my author page and you can message me there. That's the best. I have a website, which I know you're going to post that information. There's some beautiful pictures of the property that they had that they transformed from just scrub to a wedding venue. It was so beautiful along the river. They called that their little bit of heaven. Go to my website and check that out. It'll give you more information about the story and the people. And I'd be happy to hear from anyone. I'm really excited when people message me and let me know that Cherie's story resonated with them in a way that helped them through a circumstance in their own family. And that's what she wanted. Well, it certainly resonated with me. So I just want to thank you again for sharing with us and for sharing Cherie's story with the world. Thank you. Thanks for the opportunity. Take care. You too. I want us to dig into a passage from scripture about loving our enemies. It's from Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 through 47. And this is from the New International Version. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? It's really hard for any of us to imagine our precious children as enemies. But there are times that we feel like we're in a battle together and we aren't on the same side. Cherie wasn't on the same side of the battle as Dwayne, yet she prayed for him. She encouraged him. She loved him. She wasn't looking for a reward. She was just trying to be obedient. That is such an amazing example for all of us. And notice, too, what it says in the second half of verse 45, that God sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. We are all going to have tough times in life. We're probably all going to have tough times with our kids. What we don't want to do is automatically assume that because they're our kids, their behavior is our responsibility, especially the older they get. We do our best, but they decide how they will behave. If any one of you out there is suffering right now because you've got a child making bad choices and you feel responsible, please only take ownership of what you did or didn't do. Your son or daughter is responsible for the rest. If you liked this episode, be sure to check out the show notes with links to others and links to helpful resources. You can also help someone else begin their journey as a different kind of PI, a person of impact. When you share this episode, when you subscribe, and especially if you could give me a five-star rating and a nice review so that more people can discover what we're talking about here at The Unlovely Truth. The Unlovely Truth is written and produced by me, Lori Morrison. Music is by Neil Cortex, and the artwork is by Shelby Highland. See you all next time.
Thank you for listening to this episode that is part of the Spark Media Network that can now be heard on the Edify app.